When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analysing breaking news in architecture, housing and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive programme of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. With four months to go, Open House Festival announces its guest curators. A row erupts over the mass arrests of anti-coronation protesters. The Museum of London is on target for a delayed 2026 opening. And should people who keep their gardens green receive a tax cut? My name is Saiba Chudda. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week at Bureau in the Design District is Hafsa Adam. Hafsa is Assistant Curator at the Open House Festival. Welcome to the show, Hafsa. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> There are just four months to go until doors across the capital open for the annual Open House London Festival running across two jam-packed weekends in September. In anticipation of the event, which last year saw more than 800 buildings open to the public, attracting 170,000 visits, Open City has revealed four new guest curators who will be adding their favourite spaces to the 2023 festival lineup. Prudence Ivy of the Evening Standard, the built environment professional Nabil Al-Kanani, the multidisciplinary Patch Collective and architectural photographers Jim Stevenson and Sophia Smith complete the lineup of guest curators. Additionally, the English Heritage Blue Plaques, the GLA's Good Growth Fund, the 20th Century Society, the Modern House, the UK Green Building Council, Serious Music and Bureau are all partnering with the festival this year. Meanwhile, the charity has launched an open call for design partners, publicised by the AJ, encouraging architects to put forward their projects for inclusion in the annual festival. Ten architecture practices who go the furthest to unlock buildings or spaces not normally open to everyone will be credited as official design partners of the world-renowned event. Zoe Cave, chief curator of the Open House Festival, said, quote, 
The Festival's Design Partner Award is an accolade that represents both the architectural merit of a project and the practices that champion genuine public engagement and the social value of architecture. She went on, quote, When done well, these projects can provide hope and optimism for what architecture can achieve. Architects that open one or more projects and offer exemplary tours of their projects for the festival are donating their time and expertise and ultimately make the programme all the richer. So Hafsa, as Open House Assistant Curator, you're a key member of the team working behind the scenes on the festival. For any listeners who haven't visited or taken part before, what's the festival all about? Well, Cyber, for me and I think for like everyone on the team, the Open House Festival really is just about celebrating and more, making more accessible London and its architecture. It's a great way to engage people who live, work or like study in the city or people who just love the city in general to be more curious about their built environment. It's about, you know, exploring your own neighbourhood or exploring a new neighbourhood. But it's not even just about the buildings or the spaces or the architecture, but also about the communities and the people who make up those spaces and who look after them and just learning more about Londoners and London in and of itself and just really celebrating and enjoying that together. Amazing. And this year we've got um, a list of really interesting guest curators that have been chosen. Um, Who are they and what do you think they're going to bring to the festival this year? Yeah, so we're announcing four new guest curators this year. Um, We've got Prudence Ivy, who's the editor of the Evening Standards Weekly Homes and Property Supplement. We've got Nabil Al-Kinani, who's a British Iraqi built environment professional and creative practitioner raised in Wembley. Um, We've got Nima Murray and Betty Owu, who are from Patch Collective. Um, They are a multidisciplinary group of spatial practitioners and they work around kind of creating spatial interventions and um, all through like the lens of the diaspora, which is really, really cool. And we've got Jim Stevenson and Sophia Smith, uh, who both run a small film studio called Stevenson and. Um, Jim's an architectural photographer and filmmaker, and Sophia is a writer and photographic artist. The thing with the guest curators is just about engaging like more diverse range of voices in helping curate the festival because the festival is like this huge thing and um it is kind of hard i think sometimes for people to navigate it but i think in creating strands like guest curators it gives people like an easier window into like maybe they want to look at a particular theme or narrative that these people are exploring and then people can engage with that you know on a smaller scale rather than taking on the festival as like this huge monolith which it can be quite daunting you know um with the guest curators, we are hoping to engage with diverse Londoners who are like in their own right practitioners within the built environment and the design industry, but I think in various capacities. So like Prudence Ivy, you know, writes about homes and probably has access to like some of the coolest houses in London. And then we've got people like Jim Stevenson, who's photographed incredible projects all across the UK, but in London specifically, and has worked with loads of architects. Um, Yeah, so I think it's a really exciting prospect and I think definitely a really interesting strand of the festival that I really love working on. That's great that things can sort of be packaged up so people can uh, feel like it's a bit more manageable. Um, Talking about diverse voices, the New City Curators Programme features graduates of Open City's mentoring programme, Accelerate. So why is it valuable and important to have more young, underrepresented voices actively involved in the festival too? Historically, the arts and design and culture industry has been 
quite non-inclusive for young people from underrepresented backgrounds. I think there hasn't always been opportunities to kind of get your leg in the door. And I think programs like Accelerate definitely help in like giving students the background to kind of get there. But I think the City Curators is going to be a great program because it's just like, yes, we've given you these skills and this education, but it's like now you can put that into practice. We're giving them that first set of experience. You know, it might be the first like paid opportunity that they've ever had. And I think to nurture them through something like Accelerate, but then also be like, you know, there's this that you can do afterwards, will give them that extra set of confidence. And I think having young people represented in the built environment is really important because ultimately this is something that they're going to inherit. It's like not fair for the decisions to be made by people, you know, who aren't going to be here, and I don't know, in 10, 20 years time, because ultimately like this is what the younger people, the younger generation are going to inherit from us. And I think they should have a say in their built environment and like what that means to them. And it will help engage other younger people in the built environment, see that it's something that applies to them and like the people around them. And I think it's yeah going to be a really cool program. Yeah, it'll be amazing to hear their perspective. Um, and obviously, the festival has partners that help make it happen. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this year's partners and what they're going to bring to the festival? What can the public expect to see and experience as a result of them supporting the event? Yeah, so we've got a bunch of new partners this year. Um, we're going to be working with the 20th Century Society, who are going to be mobilising their members to take part in Open House. They're going to have a collection focusing on outstanding 20th century architecture at risk. And then we're collaborating with Serious Music, who are producers of EFG London Jazz Festival. And they're going to work with us to animate experiences of interesting architectural spaces um, for visitors as part of their new programme called Pin Drop. Um, we're working with Bureau in the design districts of North Greenwich um, and they're going to be providing flagship office space to Open City in exchange for a showcase of their creative co-working space and to support the participation of places across the Royal Borough of Greenwich. And then we're looking at places like the Modern House, the UK Green Building Council and, you know, these places are all just going to add and make the programme more richer and be able to give us, you know, just that much more to continue doing the work that we do with the festival and making London more open. Wow, that's a huge breadth and lots of sort of familiar names there. So that sounds really, really great. Um, so the there's also the Design Partners Open Call, which we talk, which we mentioned at the end um, of the story there. So um, that aims to actively engage architects and practices in this community-focused festival. So why is it important for architects and others in this industry to get hands-on with cultural events like the Open House Festival? With the Design Partners Programme, and I think just with architects contributing to the festival, it's as much for them as it is for us. It's a wonderful opportunity for them to showcase their projects, especially when you look at buildings and spaces that are usually private places that people don't have access to like very few people are going to be engaging with this incredible space that you have designed and I think the festival is a wonderful place for them to be able to open up the doors and get a lot more engagement and get a lot more people in through the doors to see the work that they've done I think yeah as an architect you really are missing out if you don't have a project in the open house festival it's a wonderful way to give back to the communities and the spaces that you build in it's a wonderful way to engage with people I think it's a wonderful way to kind of talk more about your architecture and what it is that you know your practice is trying to do and how it's trying to help better the city because ultimately I think that's what we're all trying to do um, 
practices have historically enjoyed opening up with a festival. And I think the Design Partners Initiative is also to acknowledge that obviously we understand like how much work they put into obviously opening up these spaces for us, you know, and donating that time and doing all of these things, you know, that they don't necessarily have to do. But I think everyone that we've spoke to about it definitely enjoys opening up for the festival. And um, I think they see like the social value and the impacts that it has um, on the work that they do. Um, and finally, Hafsa, with the inside line, what are you most looking forward to in the festival? I think I'm definitely going to have to be biased and say the guest curators. As a curator myself, it's always really interesting to see what themes and strands our guest curators choose to like hone in on. Um, last year, we had our three guest curators and I visited a number of the buildings and I think the Pocket House was incredible um, by Takari Works. And um, we also had Janet Street Porter's Old House, uh, Fog House by David Adjay, which was like incredible and yeah, it wasn't a space that had ever been in the festival before. So I think it's definitely one to watch the guest curator collections, you know. So I'm really looking forward to it. Amazing. That does sound very exciting. So on to our next story. Last weekend, more than 20 million people across the UK tuned into the multi-million pound coronation of King Charles III, a historic spectacle which received blanket coverage across the national and international media. Not everyone welcomed the new king, however, and the Metropolitan Police arrested a number of anti-monarchist protesters in Trafalgar Square, where a large but peaceful demonstration led by campaign group Republic took place. The Met in total made 64 arrests, which included the core team of Republic, who have now been released without charge. The forces since expressed regret that six demonstrators from the campaign group were arrested after mistaking items for, quote, lock-on devices. Speaking to the BBC, Chief Executive of Republic Graham Smith, who was one of those arrested, said he believed the police had, quote, every intention of arresting him before the event. He added that this was despite, quote, four months of close conversation with the Metropolitan Police in which we explained to them exactly what we were going to do and where we were going to be. In a statement, Smith said, quote, the right to protest peacefully in the UK no longer exists. Instead, we have a freedom to protest that is contingent on political decisions made by ministers and senior police officers. So, Hafsa, the coronation was a once-in-a-lifetime moment for London. What did the celebrations look like in your area? Should we be concerned that what was pitched as a special holiday weekend celebration for everyone is now being overshadowed by concerns over how police handled peaceful protests? I'm not too sure about what celebrations were going on in my area. I did kind of avoid going out on the Saturday just because I knew the trains were going to be crazy and there were going to be a lot of people outside. I mean, I'm not going to complain and say that it wasn't great to have a bank holiday weekend. Um, I think a few houses in my neighbourhood probably had like Union Jacks on display and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't something I was heavily involved in, I would say. I don't think we should be particularly concerned about it being overshadowed. I think that this to me seems like a more important thing that we should be focusing on the fact that peaceful protesters were arrested especially considering um the fact that they had consulted with the police beforehand and i mean the policing that they showed regret now i think it does seem like it was targeted it is quite scary because i don't know what that means for like the future of britain when it comes to peaceful protests and i think it's definitely something that we should be focusing on well i did actually watch a little bit of it with um, my two-year-old and um, i was really impressed with the kind of scope of the different musicians and choirs um that were on display which apparently were handpicked by by king charles um 
And my two-year-old was loving it. He was clapping at the end of every piece. So I think that was, for me, that was the, the gold star moment um, of the whole thing. So the Met have admitted that they made mistakes over the arrest and it's been widely covered um, by the UK media, which is continuing to focus on what happened even days after the event. So how might arrests like these affect the trust that Londoners have in the police? And what does it signal to future protesters? I mean, I don't speak for anyone when I say this, but I don't think I use trust and police in the same sentence. Um, and I do think that trust in the police force definitely has been declining for years now. I don't think people have a particularly positive inclination towards the police as an institution. I think especially considering that they obviously are supposed to be politically neutral. And I guess some people would argue that, you know, the monarchy isn't political. Um, but I think in today's context I think it is a very political thing to be a royalist um, and I think the police kind of have showed I don't want to say that they've showed obviously what side that they're on or anything like that but I think in arresting these protesters it kind of has shown a very strong stance on like what is considered acceptable to be protested against and I think definitely puts people in a kind of scary and vulnerable position um, but I don't think that it will deter people from protesting I think if anything the fact that we are focusing on this shows that you know, people are seeing that this is a problem and, like, the fact that we are almost being stripped of this right to protest peacefully um, is hopefully going to make people protest harder, I think, and I think it should, yeah. Yeah, and it's a sharp kind of contrast, isn't it, between the fact that it was the sort of re the regalia and all the kind of excitement of the coronation set against people protesting and that it's kind of come up in this this issue that's that's kind of gone on over the last few days. Um and, you know, the whole ceremony was a very sort of um, regal and it had all the pomp. It was coined Operation Golden Orb and estimated to cost the taxpayer between 50 and 100 million pounds. Um, yet it came shortly after chief economist at the Bank of England told Britons they, quote, need to accept they are becoming poorer. Given the current deepening cost of living crisis, was spending millions on an event like this the right thing to do? And if not, what would a more empathetic response to the cost of living crisis by King Charles look like? I think the whole thing was quite bizarre and tone deaf. I think that there's no sense of like understanding what the country is going through as a whole, especially following the statement from the Bank of England. And then I think to go forward with this, especially with councils, I think pitching in money to celebrate and like put on celebrations in their respective boroughs, I think that there obviously is money that could be used to help people. It's just doesn't seem to be deemed priority enough. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, what they were thinking. <laughs> it's revealed the real tension between tradition and the current state of affairs in this country. And I think it's probably something we're going to keep, you know, it's opened up the debate now um, and people are going to keep talking about it. Um, we could probably talk about it for a lot longer, but we're going to move on to our next story, which is uh, about the Museum of London. The Museum of London has confirmed it is to open its doors in 2026, although later stages of the redevelopment are not set to complete until 2028. This was covered in the AJ this week. The museum said there will be a, quote, big lead up to the already much delayed opening of its new home in Smithfield Market, which is currently being constructed to designs by Stanton Williams, Asif Khan and Julian Harrop, and is reportedly now set to cost £437 million, which is 30% more than expected. 
And speaking at an on-site press visit, director Sharon Ament said the museum would host a festival for Londoners in 2025 before the main part of the museum opens the following year. And describing how the museum's design put learning spaces at the forefront, Ament joked that its, quote, mark of success would be if 14-year-old school pupils bunk off school to come. Also speaking at the site, Asif Khan described the porous, resilient building itself as, quote, the greatest artefact in the museum's collection. The architect said working on the designs had raised the question of what the existing architecture can offer for a 21st century museum and said the building had proved really adaptable to the changing needs of London. So, Hafsa, as someone who grew up in London, what do you make of the new Museum of London? Have you ever visited the old site in the Barbican? And are you excited about this new Smithfield site? I have unfortunately only been once or twice, I think, to the old site. I remember I think I went once with school um, at some point and I think I went once with friends during uni um, and I remember it just looking like this huge kind of fortress, which was like a really interesting building and I think it was great. Um, and I definitely, from what I've seen from the plans and everything that I've read online about the new site, I think it definitely sounds really exciting and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how that comes together and visiting at some point once it opens definitely yeah for sure yeah and it's got a whole um sort of theme around past present and future um in the way the new um, museum of london's been designed with an our time ground floor pastime celebrated in newly excavated vaults and the future and imagined time dedicated to the upper floors so and one unique feature of the design is the incorporation of other organizations in the same building with designated spaces earmarked for other london charities and organizations to operate from so what do you make of this porous approach to running museums, Hafsa, could this end up being a major cultural hub and a new home for organisations like Open City? It sounds really, really exciting and like incredibly innovative. And I think this idea of collaboration amongst like cultural institutions is definitely something we need to do more of going forward. I think there are a lot of organisations like Open City, other kind of cultural organisations who do similar work to we do. And um, I think there are definitely more fronts in which we can like collaborate on projects and, you know, share ideas, share like funding and stuff. And I think it's definitely seems like an exciting prospect for the future. Um, I do wonder like how that will actually work, like in practice, like in reality. Um, I feel like there is maybe like the chance that some organisations will get absorbed maybe into other organisations because I think there are such similarities in what we do across the spectrum. I think I'm definitely excited to see what could happen. Yeah, it sounds like lots more opportunity to collaborate, which um, feels like an exciting prospect. Um, and a few miles south to this multi-million pound um, London Museum construction site is a very different cultural venue, Brixton O2 Academy, which is reportedly facing indefinite closure after the Met urged the council to strip the venue's operator of their licence. And this was following the deadly crowd crush last year. So what does this particular cultural closure say about the current state of culture in London, Hafsa? I do think it is a shame because I think it kind of points out to us which cultural institutions are held in higher regard. If something similar had happened, for example, at the Roundhouse, that the chances of that being shut down are a lot smaller than obviously closing down the O2 Academy in Brixton, which has been a music venue since like the 1980s. And obviously it's very embedded in the culture of Brixton and within that community. It is sad that they're so quick to shut it down when I think there are probably other options and like other regulations and things that could have been put in place to make sure that that didn't happen. You know, it's not like it's something that I think has historically happened in this space. And I think 
that it is a shame that they're shutting it down and I do hope that they reconsider because I've been there before and I've been to a few concerts there and I think that it would be a shame to lose such a lovely venue. Now on to our next story which is about gardens and people who keep their gardens full of nature-friendly greenery should get a reduction in their council tax according to a study reported by The Guardian this week. New research shows that cities have lost about half of their green garden space in just 20 years as paving over gardens and or laying down plastic astroturf grass has boomed in popularity. Professor Ross Cameron from the University of Sheffield advised that financial incentives could be given to gardeners who ensure their outdoor spaces are well stocked with plants, not only to boost local biodiversity, but also to help with drainage and heat retention. He said, quote, Gardens account for a third of all our urban areas and are vital spaces in terms of keeping our buildings and city environments cool in summer, absorbing rain to avoid flash flooding and providing an important refuge for wildlife. Gardens need to be green and full of plants to be beneficial to the local environment, and some types of garden are more beneficial than others. The paradox is that many gardens are not actually green, and some trends in garden design can be very damaging for the urban environment. We have paved them over to house the car or to provide sterile patio space. Factors that increase urban temperatures and increase flooding risk. So Hafsa, what's this all about? Why are London's gardens and backyard green spaces so important? And do you think this is a good solution so they are kept natural for plants and animals? I love wild gardens. I think it's really beautiful. Wild gardens tend to flourish on their own because obviously it's local biodiversity and, you know, it's something that almost takes care of itself. And I think moving towards having more wild gardens and I guess incentivizing it is like a nice idea. I do think, on the other hand, I do think that it's putting the problem on the individual and on the public. Um, the amount of wasted green space is really upsetting and it is quite sad, but I think that you can look at things, for example, like golf courses that take up, you know, so much of our green space and like are private and um, causing just as much of an issue, I guess, as someone's patio or someone's, you know, astroturf. It could be seen as slightly insidious because if I'm here and I'm growing my wild garden, but, you know, I'm kind of side-eyeing my neighbour who's got like a patio and like a green space, I'm going to be thinking, you know, Helen next door is the reason that climate change is getting worse when really and truly she's not making as much of an impact as, I guess, these larger issues that I think we could be focusing on. Um, so I definitely think it is interesting. I, I mean, I love wild gardens and I think, you know, if more people are open to the idea of having wild gardens, I think it would be incredibly lovely. And the fact that that helps the climate is even more beautiful. Um, but I don't like the idea that this is putting pressure, putting the kind of scale of climate change on the individual and on the public um, when really and truly even if we all decided to have wild gardens, you know, if huge corporations continue to do what they're doing, my wild garden isn't really going to make a difference. Picking up on your point about the individual burden and in your experience as a curator and your access to lots of community gardens, do you think that there's some precedent there in ways of managing green spaces that have more um, ownership um, shared by a uh, a larger group of people rather than the individual? I think definitely. I think community gardens are a wonderful way to help the community generally, but also to increase biodiversity and I think do exactly what this is hoping to incentivize. If that money, for example, instead of being like a council tax relief, was invested into community gardens, because a lot of community gardens are at risk, you know. We have the Phoenix Garden Community Centre um, just off of Tottenham Court Road, which has been in the festival for years and is an incredible space, but, you know, isn't a space that 
you know, they take donations. And I think if people donated to these or if councils donated and invested more money into their community gardens, I think that you would see a lot more influx of like support and a lot more influx into like people actually having the time to take care of these spaces. Do you think there's an element of this about aesthetics in here? Because it sounds like you like the way a wild garden looks and feels to be around. But a lot of people like that plastic AstroTurf stuff because it's like no maintenance, looks neat and tidy, and there's no effort. So do you think people need to be able to find more joy in that messy tangle of bushes? I definitely understand because I think for example, with having like a garden that has, you know, wildflowers, whatever, that you need to take care of more, you know, maybe prune more. Not everyone has that kind of time in their day or in their week to be able to commit to doing that. So I do understand why people do, you know, prefer having this kind of clean, something that you don't have to like maintain maybe once a year, for example. I do understand it because, you know, people are busy as it is. Like, do I have time to be tending to a kind of bramble full of like branches in my garden every week? Like not everyone's going to have time for that. And whether it's an aesthetic choice or like a choice because you don't have the time, I think maybe like the council introducing that as a thing, maybe it will make people reconsider. But I don't think people should be shamed into doing it. I don't think, no. So we're moving on to the culture section. And tonight, Thursday 11th of May, I will be chairing the latest in the Accelerate Debate series at Rich Mix in Shoreditch alongside Open City's Sean Eviali. The debate, curated by Open City Accelerate, is in partnership with ACAN uh, and will interrogate the merits and pitfalls of both sides of the demolition versus upgrades argument. So we've got Kath Slesser, Finn Harper, Sana Sheikh, Claire Benny, Joris Lechen and Samira Elbaja will be taking on the elephant in the room and trying to answer one of the biggest questions in architectural culture. Is it time to stop building? Tickets are available on the Open City website and doors open at 6.30. So we hope to see some of our listeners there. And finally, new building tours have been announced for the 2023 Open City Friends programme. The programme includes guided tours of Thamesmead, the 300-year-old Pushkin House, the developments at Strand Alditch with LDA design and an architect-led tour of Granston House. To view the full lineup and see how your support as an Open City friend enables some great programmes, go to the Open City website and check it out. Hafsa, it has been an absolute pleasure to feature you on The London. Where should listeners go to find out more about your work on the Open House Festival? Thank you so much for having me, Cyber. And if you want to keep up with the Open House Festival and learn more about what's happening, whether you're a visitor or you want to contribute to the festival, you can learn more on our social media at opencity underscore UK. You can also sign up to our newsletter, which you can find on our website. And our website is open-city.org.uk forward slash open hyphen house hyphen festival hyphen 2023 you've been listening to the lundown a podcast from open city made in association with the 20th century society and the london society if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered we recommend subscribing to the architects journal which reports on all these issues and many more to get early ad-free access to the Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chadder, and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible, and equitable.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.